Sisters of the Islamic Center of Bloomington invite you to explore hijab from a personal perspective. We want to share the importance of hijab, why we choose to wear it, and what it means to us, in the hopes that by listening to our stories, you will come to better understand who we are as Muslims, women, and humans. The Hijabi Diaries. Muslim women speaking for themselves. Put these on like historical buildings. Mm -hmm. And it's, and like for example, the neon lights, when the moving words, it makes like forts permanent. Yeah. I asked Rabia to take me to one of her favorite galleries in central London. We ended up at the Tate Modern Museum, London's largest gallery of modern art, which is a looming, maze like structure on South Bank, free to all and full of modern and contemporary art from around the world. While searching for a favorite feminist art exhibition of Rabia's, we got caught up in looking at a similar exhibit, a series of plaques and paintings. We walked into a room where three large paintings hung. The colors are bright, fully saturated, and we drifted towards one where green ghost-like figures fill a graffitied subway car. Each of the figures is contorted their faces appearing to cry out, and their bodies bracing for some kind of impact. Words painted around them read, I am not free. I can be exploded at any time. What does it make? Do you, I mean, how do you relate to it? Like, when you see it, like, what do you think of, like, things you've experienced? Um, so being a Muslim woman, of course, I'm technically free, but I'm not. There's a lot of repressions from society and from individuals in society because I'm constantly being told I can't do this because I'm hijabi or I can't do this because I'm a woman. Do you know what I mean? I, I guess it's repression on two kind of scales um, and this kind of, it could be a lot because like there's humans in that thing but then it could be, this could be like a bomb or it could be inside someone's mind, what goes on in their mind when they're trying to, I guess, attacking somebody else, whether it's verbally or physically. Um, so personally, I feel this could resonate with a lot of us, us women, um, trans people, or like LGBT community people, um, Muslim women, Jewish, like any religion, any cultural background, where society tells us we're free, yet we have these repressions holding us back. Um, and yeah, like I can be exploded at any time. That any time is quite important because time is just it's fleeting anyway. Because we can never know what's going to happen, our next steps, or when people are going to approach us and take away our freedom um, or our voices or our rights as well. Rabia and I are both students at King's College London. It's Easter holidays at the moment, so while the libraries are packed with students studying and writing term papers, the classrooms of Bush House are mostly empty. We walk around until we find the one that we can record in. Rabia is from North London, an area of the city whose culture and urban landscape can change street by street. Camden, Kentish Town, Finchley, and Highbury and Islington. These close neighbors all have their distinctive styles. Hundreds of years ago, they may even have had their own dialects of English. One thing they do have in common now is that they all have a local neighborhoody feel. 
visiting North London, it would be like you were visiting a version of Brooklyn or Queens that had been born in the 13th century and still retained some landmarks, mostly churches, from that era. Rabia grew up here, raised Muslim by her Turkish parents, going to a Catholic school, and surrounded by friends who she felt understood and supported by. Um, so I grew up in, I think, in a pretty quiet area of North London. However, like the school I went to and um, the kind of youth culture was quite lively. Um, like there were a lot of clashes between schools and a lot of kind of gangs here and there. But at the end of the day, I would go home and it would be quite safe environment. Um, and then back home whenever we go back so in Turkey to our village it's kind of a different upbringing because I'm more stuck inside the home because it's a very traditional environment very traditional landscape women can't really be out if they're especially if they're single on their own um like they'll be doing the kitchen things and that kind of growing up with that and then growing up in a city where I'm able to just walk out alone out of my house and I'm safe because at the end of the day I know where I'm going it kind of just creates this kind of conflict well conflicting kind of identity um so I'm really glad that I live in North London where at the end of the day I go to my like little safe little estate um but then growing up kind of with that village rural life, it has been like, it's a part of character development. So um, you are obviously growing up in a household like as um, a British girl, mm-hmm. a British and Turkish, but like yeah. Br- growing up here being British, yeah. um, Muslim. And then your mum is from Turkey. Yeah. Right. And your dad, where is your dad from? He's also from Turkey, yeah. But he's more, because he came here when he was quite young. So he's assimilated himself into British culture. Like we have a whole English breakfast cafe and he owns it. And he can like, he, he does this thing where he can change his identity depending on who he's talking to. So he can go Cockney for his customers because, you know, everyone's like that. And then he can come home and he'll just be his normal self. Um, but yeah, they were both born in Turkey and they're like completely different like my mum she came here when she was 20 so she has a degree of the language um however she does experience more kind of assault out in the streets because people know know she's vulnerable because they can tell like when someone's not walking with confidence or don't really know what they're like doing so which is obviously sad but it's reality you and your mom have quite different experiences of what it is to live here. So how do you see that being different or do you talk about it at all? Um, we do talk about it because she comes home and she's telling us this, this, this happened. And sometimes I ask her, what did you do? And she was like, I couldn't do anything because a lot of the time she doesn't know. Well, she, My mom does know how to defend herself in times, but... You know, if someone's like spitting in your face, like what do you do? Like, and someone also, in her face. yeah, like she was just walking on the pavement, and then someone was like trying to stop her from walking because so she was taking one step, he was taking the other, and then he must have just spat and then just walked off. And she said to me, she didn't know what to do because she didn't expect it. My mom is the kind of person she doesn't expect people to be mean to her because, like, 
I guess it's the same with me. You see good in people, and so you don't expect them to do anything wrong. And she just thought, oh, we're both getting in each other's way. Let me move over and say sorry. But obviously, it's not always the case. Um, So we do talk about it, and I do try to tell her, you know, if next time that happens, tell them, like, say, excuse me, what's wrong with you? Like, why are you doing this? Um, So it's kind of these conversations we have kind of helping each other. Um, But at the end of the day, I know, like, my experience is always going to be different to hers because I can defend myself because I can speak the language of the person or I can communicate or I can, you know, I have social media so I can instantly post what's happening and then there can be this uprising and, you know, people come together when you do that. So I'm really lucky. Rabia is frustrated, to say the least, by the lack of bystander intervention in London, especially on public transit. She and I talked about how the culture on tubes and buses here is to look away from surprising or unusual things and just pretend like they're not happening. After telling me about the incident where a man spat on her mother, Rabia mentioned that her friend was assaulted by a man who tried to remove her hijab in public. Thank God she was very, she's very confident. So if anyone tries to say anything to her that's negative, she will fight back. However, she did say nobody else helped her at all like she was on her own um and that's the big problem about london culture that i don't like people just act like nothing's happening like you could be dying and sometimes you get a good person here and there but until it's too late then nobody wants to know um and it's often because everyone's in a rush or everyone's just minding their own business when really we should kind of be empowering each other um because we're all londoners at the end of the day and we should just stick together against hate is she okay? Yeah, she was fine because, like I said, she defended herself and she cha- like she even chased them to get a picture so they can report it to the police. But still, she said nobody helped her, which is the worst thing that can happen when you're in such a vulnerable position when you're kind of being discriminated and no one wants to speak out for you and you have to do that whilst being attacked. That I, I can't even imagine how that feels. So with that in mind, your family... Obviously, you go through all of this stuff building in London, but you managed to, your family has managed to commit yourself not only to fighting for each other, but also for people who you live so far away from. So tell me about like growing up and fighting for like Palestinian freedom. Um, So a lot of it was through protests of course we're still fighting Um, and until I came to university there was only so much we could do as a like as within my family um, protests campaigns charities that was kind of the basis but until I came to university and I found out a lot more um, for example KCL's King's College's ties with Israel and all of this and how that impacts um, the students here studying not just the Palestinian students but of course ethnic minority students Um, so I got more involved with not just for Palestine of course but kind of involved in events and charities and um, protests for Syria for Yemen for and then the Uyghur people kind of that led that branched out because I was so inspired by the work that other students were doing on campus I wanted to create something as well um, so we can again unite for a cause that we all are passionate about in the Muslim world everyone's our brothers and sisters so if we don't help them and then we go through something we can't expect that same kind of help because we didn't do that ourselves in her first year of school at King's College Rabia created her organization KCL for Uyghur 
As she says, it was the first time that she had ever stepped up to take a leadership role in activism. You may have heard a bit about the Uyghur people and their recent victimization by the Chinese government. It turns out that the only thing new and recent about this situation is the news coverage by Western media. Rabia gives me an explanation of the situation. It's really difficult to summarize it, but um, I will say, um, so it's been going on since I believe the 1970s, but it could be even earlier than that. A lot of satellite information shows kind of that region being um, condensed and these concentration camps being built. But again, we don't know exactly, we don't, we can't pinpoint it to one date because at the start of when this was happening, no one was talking about it. Um, so with the Uyghur Muslims, they have, they are an ethnic Turkish group living in, so the Xinjiang region, that name was given to them by the Chinese um, Communist Party. Um, so on a, they don't really like it when you refer to it as Xinjiang, but that's the region where the Uyghur population is. And there has been a crackdown on kind of, they want to reduce the amount of Muslims in that region. Um, so anyone that says they're Uyghur, they're, at the end, they're also Muslim, right? So they want to reduce that population. And through that, they decided to create these re-education camps. And that's what they called them. So they're essentially concentration camp style kind of, the torture that happens in them we, we can't even imagine and honestly which is what's sad is we don't really know much as what's happening inside because no one really makes it out alive or no one can contact that contact their family members and anyone that makes it out alive they have to hide their face and name because if the Chinese state realize that information is being leaked that is end game for that person um, so these re-education camps were organized to um, teach them the like the Chinese national anthem and make them eat pork and everything that's against the Muslim lifestyle. Um, take a lot of them are populated with men because they t take the men from the household. So a lot of women and children are left. So women left as widows or children left as orphans. Um, and um, the women are then made to marry mainland Chinese men because at the end of the day, it's an ethnic yeah. It's an ethnic cleansing and it's they're trying to just wipe it all out, make it brainwash them. Um, there are loads of videos of like Uyghur little children speaking in Chinese and saying like the man is asking them, so what's your flag? And they said, you know, the red one, the red flag with yellow stars or they were like China. And like, it's just this brainwashing from a young age because they fear. And this is off, um, happening because they fear extremism kind of growing in China. Again, that links to the stereotypes around Muslims and terrorism. So what's happening is just, it's an ethnic cleansing. Um, they're trying to wipe out a whole race and just create a Chinese population and take over that region, which no one's really talking about. Um, but recently there have been a lot more articles. There's almost an article every day being published about it, which is really good, but it does make those people writing those articles appear as a threat because the Chinese Communist Party do not want things to be exposing. They don't want to be exposed because they don't see what they're doing as wrong. They see it as, mm -hmm. it's just re-education. It's just us trying to make them better Chinese citizens. When I first, first ever heard of it, I must have been like 10 years old. Um, and because East Turkestan, the, the Uyghurs, they are a Turkic ethnic group. So again, they're kind of 
kind of brothers and sisters in that sense because Turkey, Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, like, they're all Turkic ethnic groups. Um, so in, I must have been 10 years old and my family were like, we're going to go to the Chinese embassy to protest. And then I must have just asked why. And then my dad explained to me. And then after that, a few years after, I started seeing it more on Twitter. Twitter is literally like the place to go when it comes to instant news so every anything that happens twitter finds out first or like they share it more so i must have seen it on twitter and and then the one time i saw it i read into it more um because if you do google um like uyghur muslims there are a few articles that you can rely on that do come up um so just i kept reading and reading until it kind of got to me when it was becoming more popular on um instagram twitter facebook and then I researched kind of ways to help, like thing ways, what what can I do just kind of on my own? And then I realized me on my own, it's not gonna make a difference. Like it, it could make some kind of a change or add to that change that will happen, but it's not gonna make, on in the long term, it's not gonna make a difference. So I decided that um, seeing kind of KCL Action Palestine and Syria Solidarity and all these um, societies, I said, why don't I create a campaign? Because it was in the middle of the year, so I couldn't create a society just yet. So I said, let me create this campaign. So I create the Twitter and Instagram, but then I was like, wait, I need to create an event because I know what's happening. My friends know what's happening, but there's everybody else or a lot of people kind of briefly know what's happening and so they need someone I guess that's been through it to come talk to them and that's when I contacted contacted my speakers um and it took like six months to kind of just get confirmation of speakers and event like I, I was gonna have other speakers but it didn't work out and dates so it was really stressful but at the end of the day I had my speakers and then they they kind of educated the room not kind of just telling them information they kind of went through their life stories their own experiences their family's experiences and then at the end of the event I had people kind of come up to me like this was great we didn't know this was happening or that was happening we didn't know how severe it was um some people we didn't know were saying we didn't know how long this was happening for because it's been going on for decades and then I had a group of students come up from City University of London and they were like, we want to do literally this at our own university. And then they create their campaign. And I was hoping, that was what I was hoping, that people come up to me and be like, I want to do this, but what can I do? And then they had their event, which was really good. Um, they had like a poet who had just written a poem about the Uyghur people. Like it's these little things like creating art and creating platforms for the issue that will hopefully kind of keep going and then I guess make some kind of a difference which is what I wanted like from the start. Rabia and I talked about the reasons why media coverage of the re-education camps in China has been minimal until the past few months or so. Her best guess is that the Chinese understand how much outrage their actions against the Uyghur Muslims could cause and that they fear a backlash. It's widely known that the Chinese tightly control the media within their own country. But why are Western news agencies like the BBC, Al Jazeera, and the New York Times, whom China cannot touch with its censorship laws, not launching their own investigations? 
I think it was in March at some point the BBC had to pull out a documentary because it mentioned the Uyghur Muslims. It was just a documentary about China, but then the the um I can't remember who it was, but they mentioned about how, you know, China's state the way they organized um the Xinjiang region, but then that documentary got pulled out because they simply mentioned something like that was going to expose them. Yeah, and that's, I guess, um, because of ties with China. It's not just Britain. Any country that speaks out about it should is going to basically sacrifice their economic ties with them. So, so um, in your perfect world, when you imagine what this campaign could do to help Uyghur Muslims, mm-hmm. like, what does that look like? What is the end game for you of what you want to happen? Um, so I have ideas again that even before um, the academic year starts, I want things to get running and going. One way is to kind of get this issue into Parliament and and get them speaking about it. Because if our MPs, our leaders, if they can discuss this within themselves, that is one kind of step towards a change. However, we need to take into account not all of them are going to be up for it because they again they're going to fear of being profiled. Um, and their kind of future might be at stake. But um, I'm hopefully, I want to kind of set up this kind of mass emailing kind of day where we have a template. So I'm after my deadlines, I want to write up a template that we can all send to our local MPs. Um, and then just kind of in one day, and if they all receive the same thing in one go, then they're going to realize there are people that care about an issue. And the people that I'm supposed to represent care about something I should represent them and go and talk about this with my other colleagues and my other MPs. Um, so that's one way. Um, maybe more protests because the Uyghur um, community is very small in London. There's more of them abroad in Berlin, um, just everywhere, Austria. Um, so maybe more protests because we do know like protests do work occasionally because it makes noise it attracts people's attentions and then it asks questions and provides answers as well so hopefully more um kind of active like go out into the streets talk to people about it and hopefully more kind of campus activism to get the students kind of prepared to you know step up and make a change because that's essentially where the future so we are the one that we are the ones that matter to these people. For people who are listening, because there will be people listening from the U.S. and from the Middle East and yeah. from London and Europe, um, how do they help? How do they help the Uyghur people? Like, how do they – what do – you You told us what students can do. Yeah. The think of people with, like, more resources and maybe more time. What do they do? Um, unfortunately, there's no, like, charities that we can kind of help them directly apart from... So I found the charity um, and, like, I kind of set up a Students for You Go GoFundMe page because in the ho- hopefully in the next academic year I want to do more campaigning or fundraising for Uyghur children and widows and orphans that are living in Turkey that, are, that were forced to flee um, East Turkestan because, again, the men are the ones that are most vulnerable to the to the oppression due to the them being seen as more threats um they're more powerful than the women and the children and so they're more likely to fight against so it's they capture them capture more of the men than the women and children and the women and children who are not captured that flee manage to flee and they're not just in turkey they're like everywhere so in germany and parts of russia 
Um, the ways we can help them is um, provide them with charity, with clothes, with basic necessities until they can get their lives set up in the countries that they are living in or they've seeked asylum in. Um, other ways is if, you know, people in higher positions like lawyers and stuff maybe talk to other higher like officials about it um kind of talk to them not just telling tell them about it but tell them the impact of not discussing this with each other what does that have not having conversations about the situation it has a bigger effect than just doing nothing because we're observing something and we're staying silent and silence is the greatest form of violence at, at the same time so um just talk and talk like at this point we just need to mobilize the issue because there's not much we can do. In a reading for one of my conflict and diplomacy courses, a social scholar noted that it's very much in human nature to want to be seen and understood by people who are different from us and to understand those people. But it is also in our nature to push back against people and things we see as threats to our own culture. And what is the threat that we see? The threat to our culture is that it will be changed or influenced by these new and different people and things. A change in our culture means a change in our identity. And in a frightening, uncertain world, we guard what makes us, us, as if we were guarding our very own lives. Rabia's Turkish family recognizes the tie between them and the Palestinians, and the tie between them and the Uyghur Muslims. The ties that Rabia talks about are old, ancient even. They're based in culture, language, and history that she and her family might not have experienced themselves. And although these seem like distant and tenuous relationships to us, to them, this is evidence of a brotherhood that cannot be denied. And so they come with aid, with drive, with conviction to serve and protect their brothers. The ability to form bonds such as these and to make connections such as these is in all of us. Rabia's family chooses to cling to the things that reveal a brotherhood between men and women. Others choose to cling to things that reveal the possibility of threat and scarcity, letting their desire for connection be overridden by their desire to maintain safety and a certain identity in an uncertain world. Whether we are aware of it or not, we here listening, this is a choice that we are all making. What's your favorite color? Mm, I don't have one. I'm not gonna lie. You don't? No. Oh my gosh. It has to be um pink. If I had to pick. Duh. Yeah. Pink. Um so um do you think you're like a type A person or a type B person? Type A, hundred percent. Very organized. I'm like Mary Poppins, I will whip out everything from my bag. <laughs> and like I will have a plan for my day by exactly by like the hour so I'll be like okay I'm gonna do one hour of reading and one hour of planning then one hour of just Netflix and then one hour I'll go back like I'm very very you're listening to the hijabi diaries I'm Aubrey Cedar the hijabi diaries is produced in partnership with the open-hearted campaign to end Islamophobia our executive producer is me Aubrey Cedar with help from WFHB news director Wes Martin and our co-producer Anna Mighty our theme music is by Baraka Blue. You can follow Rabia's campaign, KCL4, that's the number four, Uyghur, spelled U-Y-G-H-U-R, KCL4 Uyghur, on Facebook and Twitter. 
You can find more episodes of The Hijabi Diaries on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, or on our website at www.hijabidiaries.com. Thanks to Rabia for sharing her thoughts with us today. And, as always, thanks to you for listening. May your plans never get foiled. May your plot thicken. May your chicken be halal. May your style be sufficient. May your soul be free of its prison. May Allah increase you in your vision. May you find everything you've been missing. May you awake for prayer before the sun has risen When you speak, may your audience listen May you never feel trapped in a system May you sire many righteous children Who will act on prophetic tradition May you always have food on your plate May you learn from every mistake May you rise above all the hate And may Allah increase you in your state May you never pretend that you are what you ain't May your friends be real and never be fake May your rent never have to be late And may your health always be great May Allah forgive every sin Now and forever if you falter again And may you always stay close with your kin And may he make all your enemies friends May he make reality of your plans May your present be pleasant May you have a good end May your heart be purified of its flaws And may you act according to the law